Amen. So we dive into the uh, deep into the conversation of doing things that matter, and I, I hope it's been encouraging to you. We we are I don't know how many weeks into this now. We got a few weeks left, and um, it's really been about this. It's been about we want to talk about life. We want to talk about your life. We want to talk about we want to talk about what is your life. Um, what's really going on in your life, and how can we become people who really dream wildly, live differently, love recklessly? And today, we're going to talk about leading courageously. And we already mentioned that uh, we're going to talk about servanthood, and leading and serving have a lot to do with each other. But um, when I think about leadership, I always think of a story. I remember several years ago, uh, pulling my daughter aside, Emily, when she was about six years old, and her, her and her younger sister, Karis, had had a little bit of an argument, and I thought, hey, this is, a, this is a good moment to lean into my daughter and kind of encourage her to be a better leader to her sister, right? I mean, I wanted to inspire her to new heights, and so I, I pull her aside and say, hey, you know, Emily, you have the opportunity to influence, I'm using all these key words, right, your sister, and, I, you know, when you grow up, you know, your mommy and I, we're both leaders, and we want, when you grow up, we want you to be a leader too. This is inspiring, isn't it? She looks at me and she begins to like tear up. And these weren't like tears of inspiration. These are like, she's upset. And I, and I said, what's the matter? And she goes, daddy, when I grow up, I don't want to be a leader. I want to be a photographer. <laughs> I was like, all right, too much too soon here. Um, we've all experienced good leadership, bad leadership. We've experienced good leadership in our workplaces, bad leadership in our workplaces, in government, right? How many of us have witnessed some of that? Um, Various places in our community, even in the church. Not in this church, we haven't experienced any bad leadership in this church, but that one church, right? Um, if you're like me, you have all sorts of stories of good leadership and bad leadership. And, and I've actually thought, there's lots of books out there about good leadership. And I've thought, maybe we should write a book about bad leadership, you know, because that would be entertaining. Because um, I've had bad leadership moments, and it would be fun to see those in a book. One time we were in a meeting, literally a group of us, and a leader told us, not all of you will be, or you will not be treated equally, but you will be treated consistently. Think about it. Let it sink in. You will not be treated equally, but you will be treated consistently. Some of you are going to be treated like a piece of trash, but it will be consistent. You know what I'm saying? Like, if you feel undervalued, get used to it. You know what I mean? I don't, never mind. I don't think we should write a book that sounds depressing, but... I have this belief, and I open up the belief that leadership and servanthood are in, are in many ways, they're synonymous, aren't they? But people generally don't like to serve. People love leadership. They love the position of it. They love authority. But they typically avoid servanthood. And I believe if you want to be a leader of anything, you got to know how to serve. This actually isn't a popular or widely accepted belief in today's world. Um, I think we can look around and see that there's this symbolic ladder of success, right? That everybody must climb. Or We've seen people really seek power and authority in different ways, whether it be in political smear campaigns, right? That look to devour someone else to put yourself up on top. We can smell it when we're in a conversation with a friend who always has the latest gadget, right, or the one-up story. You know the one-upper? You know that one-upper in your life that you say, yeah, cool, we went to Frontier City, and they said, oh, yeah, well, I'm going to Disney World. You're like, I hate you. The one-upper, we we've seen that, right? And power and authority, it can be used for very good things. 
but it can also be abused in so many ways. Uh, people in power and in positions of authority and leadership, I think they, they come under the microscope, don't they? But they also have so much um, on them. And, I, and, when I, and I don't want to just talk about those positional sorts of leadership. I want to talk about what truly is leadership? What truly changes the world around us? What truly changes our community and our city? Because I believe people love authority and power and they typically avoid servanthood roles. I was thinking about people I know who are servants, people that really exemplify what that is. And I was thinking about different people in our church and I had one guy that really came to mind specifically. I want to show you a picture of this guy. Um, <laughs> yeah, all right, okay. This is, uh, I took this picture this morning. He's like, what are you doing? I was like, don't worry about it. This is Mike Cox. Mike serves this church and this guy is uh, he's amazing. He shows up every week before 7 a.m. And he makes sure all the doors are unlocked. Now, nobody asked him to do these things, by the way. I never asked him one time to do any of these things. He makes sure all the doors are unlocked, so all the thermostats are set. He puts on the first pot of coffee for us to have so our volunteers can have coffee. He, you know, he makes sure our sidewalks are clean, as you can see, even down to our neighbors. Um, he even makes sure that the first donuts are, he eats the first donuts to make sure they're safe to eat for us. <laughs> you never know. Whenever there's graffiti on the back of our building, he takes care of it. He makes sure all the maintenance needs that I don't ask him to take care of are taken care of. Um, he stays late after church to make sure all the lights are turned off and all the building is locked up. That's huge, by the way. And I've never asked him, and, I, and honestly, it's, it's a gift. He serves our youth ministry. He leads our parking team, and he stands outside every Sunday, no matter what the weather is. Every Sunday, not some Sundays, every Sunday, to greet you and to say hello and and many of you have had Mike serve you in your homes. Some of you have, right? Uh, I had a leaky sink just last week, and Mike helped me fix it. And so some of you clapped. Some of you, some of you have seen this guy serve, right? Um, I believe Mike is uniquely gifted to serve like he does. Uh, but I believe it's a transformation that Jesus did in his heart, that Jesus did something in him. And, and here's... Here's what, I, here's what I know. I mean, first of all, Mike, I know you, I see you back there. Thank, I'm thankful for you, man. I mean, you're, just, you're an amazing guy, and you're an example of servant leadership and doing things that matter. And, and as I've thought about people like Mike and think about people that we know that have that unique inclination to serve, it's like they're wired and designed that way to do so. And how we go, man, it's so great. So glad they're doing it, Right? And I wonder, what's, what's God doing with, with people like that? Is, is there something inside of that that we should pay attention to? And, and, and I believe this. I believe God does this. He does do this with certain people, but it's for the purpose of elevating the rest of us. It's for the purpose of inspiring something more in us to understand that there's things that we don't see that others see, and we should maybe start seeing them too. That maybe there's things that we ought to be serving too. And it's not just the church. It could be life, right? And this isn't just the church for a person like Mike, it's everywhere. So just because maybe you aren't naturally inclined to step into that servant role, maybe you're always looking for more of the positional role, doesn't mean that you're exempt from stepping into that servant role. 
And I think so often we think there's some that are gifted to do this and some that are gifted to do that, and we, we, we negate the fact that we're all called to serve. We're all called to serve. This is what Jesus is saying in John 13, which is kind of where we're going to spend the, most of our morning. If you have a Bible, you can, you can open to John 13. Um, Jesus and his disciples had entered Jerusalem, um, and it's, they had just f- finished three years of powerful ministry. They had been doing world-changing things together. And they're entering into Jerusalem, and, and the people are lifting up the name of Jesus. They're laying down palm branches as he enters, and they're calling him king, right? Hosanna is the king. And, and, and they're singing this, and the, and the disciples are right there with them. I think sometimes we just picture Jesus, but the disciples are right there with them. And what are they receiving as well? The praise. They're, they're receiving all this, and they're soaking all this in, and they're feeling the moment, if you will. Well, that's on Sunday as they come into Jerusalem. A few days later is the story of John 13. It's Thursday, the day before Jesus would be crucified, and the scene is a familiar one to most of us. I'll show you a, a painting that most of us have seen. This is the painting that Leonardo da Vinci painted. It's called The Last Supper. And uh, this is an amazing picture. Um, there's a lot of really artistic uh, undertones to it that you should read about sometime. He does an amazing job of like trying to capture the, what he believed the emotions of the disciple must have been in this scene. Because John 13, we, I just said The Last Supper, is also the scene um, there's a lot that goes on in that scene besides them just at a table uh, about to break bread. But there's a few things that are not accurate about this picture, if you can believe that or not. Uh, first, they are all seated on one side of the table. That's probably not accurate. Um, could you imagine that at Thanksgiving? Clockwise would not work, right? Some of you will get that later. Um, so, I want to paint a deeper understanding. We'll just leave that up there for a few minutes. Paint a deeper understanding of the picture of what was going on that particular night. So it's believed that Jesus and the disciples, they wouldn't gather in an upper room. Most of you have heard this story at some level. There's a large room in an, uh, a large upper room in a house inside the, uh, the city of Jerusalem. And when they had entered the city just a few days before, they were being celebrated. By the time you get to Thursday, the, the tone in Jerusalem had changed quite dramatically. And now they're actually looking for a safe place, and so they go to the, the upper room, and the thing that was customary during this time of history is uh, most tables actually were low to the floor. They weren't elevated like this with tables and chairs. Tables and chairs weren't common uh, in this time, so that's another thing about this picture that may be a little bit uh, inaccurate, but that doesn't really matter. He wasn't trying to be historically accurate. He was just trying to create the picture, right? But one thing that we should know and picture maybe a little differently is there's low-lying tables where you would, almost like a bed around the table where you would lounge and you would eat your grapes, you know, and that kind of thing. That's just what I pictured, sorry. And so, um, and, and so there's these low-lying tables. And when you came into the upper into any home, what would be is there'd be a servant there waiting with a basin of water and a towel, and they were there waiting to wash your feet. And, and this was a very practically important thing. It wasn't necessarily ceremonial or anything like that. It was, a, it, was a, it was a practically important thing that you would have your feet washed when you come in for a meal. Well, you can imagine why most of these people walked around in sandals or even barefoot through dusty, dirty, muddy, even sewer-filled streets. Because in biblical times, they didn't have sewer systems. They had buckets, and they threw them into the streets where you would then walk every day, right? And so when you came in, you would want your feet washed because where would your feet be? Really close to the food because you are now having your feet right up next to the table. And so since these low-lying tables, you would get your feet clean. Well, they came in this night, and evidently no servant was there 
to wash their feet. Who knows how the disciples took this? Who knows if this was actually normal for this to happen? But more than likely, they noticed that there was no servant, but they just kind of overlooked the, maybe the host's oversight, and they just kind of went into the room, and, and they began, they began to, to discuss some different things. Now, the story in John 13 is in all the other Gospels as well, not the one about the feet washing, which we're about to read, but of this scene in the upper room. Luke 22, there's a conversation that breaks out in which the, the disciples actually start arguing about who will become the greatest among them. Isn't that an interesting conversation? I know you've heard it before, but they start talking about who will become the greatest, and, and they're actually, actually wondering who will be number one, who will be the king of the hill, right? Who's the, they're one-upping one another, I'm sure, in this moment. And Jesus breaks into the conversation and says, hey, 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 listen, you should be like the youngest. The greatest among you will be like the youngest. The greatest among you will be like the youngest. The one who rules will be like the one who serves. And I'm among you as the one who serves. Then he goes into this moment that we read in John 13. And he does something that he's going to teach them what it means to serve. And this, this, is, this is leadership, by the way. This is, Jesus is leading his disciples. And he's about to do something so shocking that I wish it would be shocking to us, but we lose the mystery and the wonder of it because we've heard this story before. But listen to this story and, and how powerful it is, the, the act of Jesus. We'll start in verse 2, John 13, verse 2. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Now, it's extremely important to, to just make this note. Jesus is about to wash the feet of the one who's going to betray him. He already knows this. This is pretty phenomenal if you think about it. Jesus has not yet given in to temptation. He's still there, and Jesus knows what he's about to do. Verse number three, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power. Remember, we were talking about power just a minute ago. He has all the power. Jesus is holding all the power. And he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Now, it's, it's, it's likely that John is actually connecting this story to the crucifixion as well. Same language of taking his garments off or using the crucifixion. And there's, there's actually a lot of similarities between what he does in this moment in servanthood and making himself a servant, being obedient unto what? Death on a cross, right? And so there's this connection between these two moments but I want to look at verse 3. He knew that the Father had put all things under his power. Literally, Jesus had all the authority and that he had come from God and he was returning to God. So this is an incredible reminder of Jesus's identity. All right, Jesus has all the power. And what does Jesus do? I was thinking about John, in John 5 earlier, he says this. He says that Jesus does what he sees the Father doing. So Jesus is always doing what the Father would do. Jesus is doing what the creator God does. And so this is God himself. God, this is what he does. God washes feet. And if you think about this, this is quite phenomenal. Even the feet of the ones who betray him. This is the God who created the world. Now, it says, having taken off his outer garment, he was left wearing his, his tunic. Now, I like the word for tunic. It's called a shaitan. Everyone say shaitan. 
A chiton is a shorter garment. It's like a long undershirt, all right? I kind of picture like those cool hipster tees that are like long Vs that kind of hang mid-thigh. <laughs> this is what Jesus is wearing. I'm just trying to give you a visual image, all right? Da Vinci should have painted that. Um, so slaves would have been dressed like that at a meal like this. Many Jewish writings, writings indicate that the slave would be required to do this, but it wasn't just sometimes slaves. Sometimes other people would do it too, like children would do it for their parents, which I sort of like that idea. We can return to those biblical roots. Sometimes even disciples, get this, would wash the feet of their teacher. But in this case, there's a reversal of the roles, right? None of the disciples went and got a water basin. None of the disciples went and got a servant towel, but instead they were arguing about greatness. In some ways, that is such a picture of our world. Nobody's willing to grab the servant towel or the water basin. We just want to fight it out on who's got the better story, who's got the more right position, who's got the more successful life. They argued about greatness while he goes and gets the servant's towel. And here you have the one who Father had given all the power to, and he's about to take his disciples' feet and to wash them. John 13, 12 through 17. So after he washes his feet, I'm skipping down. There's a whole interaction between Peter that we're not going to get into t- today. By the way, there's so much in this passage that maybe someday we'll come back and really dig into it. But in verse 12, he says this, Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. Do you understand what I've done for you? It's a pretty important question. He just did this, and he's like, do you get it? So after Jesus finishes washing his feet, he puts, he puts his outer garment back on. He returns to the place. He asks this question, do you know what I've done for you? He says, you call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as, as I have done for you. I tell you the truth, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. So what does he mean by do as I have done? Does it mean we should like go get some buckets and start washing each other's feet? Start having some feet washing parties? What are we doing? Is that what he's saying? Jesus does not say do what I do. He says do as I do. So washing the Washing the disciples' feet is a symbolic act of something that we're supposed to harness and possess and understand how to play out in our life. And he's saying, I want you to go and do this in word and deed throughout the rest of your life. And he wants the disciples to not only own that, but he wants them to teach that. So Jesus defines greatness through servanthood. The disciples wanted to be considered powerful and great, right? Not only were they arguing about greatness, they're remembering when they walked into Jerusalem just a few days before and all the palm branches are being laid on the ground. People are shouting for Jesus, but they're also shouting for them in their minds. And so they were feeling significant and powerful and great. And here's the thing, we all want to do something great. And I say that and some of you are like, I don't know, I don't think about that much. No, I I think we all do want to do something great. We want to have something significant in our lives. The problem isn't the desire to do something something great. The problem is our understanding of greatness. Do you understand what I mean by that? The problem is our understanding of greatness. He says in verse 17, is it? Yeah, it's still up here. He says, now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. 
now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. What matters? These things, so do them. The gospel is intended to be lived. You know these things, now do them. This is what matters. This is God's heart. I skipped uh, verse 1 of John 13. I don't know if you caught that, but I started in verse 2. But verse 1, I want to go back to it. You know, so many people have fallen for this, um, this lie that greatness is about position and authority. But he's saying greatness is the willingness to be the slave, right? Well, listen to what he said in verse 1. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Now listen to this last line. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. He loved them to the end. The one with all the power and all the authority and everything in his hands, he loved those in the world, those who were his own, his people, he loved them to the end. Philippians 2 says what? He says, have the same mindset of Christ Jesus who did not consider his own power he didn't take it for his own advantage and use it for his own advantage. You get that? He doesn't use the power for his own advantage. Instead, he made himself nothing. He became a slave, a servant, and he became obedient to what? To death. He loved them to the very end. So we can easily become good people. We can go to church. We can do the right thing. And here's, here's, here's what I feel today. When I look at my life, when I look at the lives of people around me, I go, where are we serving? And how are we serving? And are we serving in just the simple kind of silver platter ways that come to us, that people bring to us, say, hey, you want to help? Or are we truly looking around us and saying, who can I serve? Because I believe, I believe that we can go to church, we can do the right things, but at the end of the day, if there's nothing unusually gospel-oriented about our lives other than we claim Jesus, I think we're buying into the lives of the world that the greatest thing that we can do, because let me ask you this, what is the greatest thing you can do? What is it that you would say before today? And so many of us, although we wanna become all that God has called us to be, for so many of us, what we really pursue and what greatness is for us is a successful life. What greatness is for us is a really, really good family. So many people say the best, the most important thing is family. Is it? Is it? I love family, but listen, Perhaps to have a great family, we need to do what Jesus did, right? To have a great family, we can't just demand that we have these moments and experiences, but we actually have to actually serve one another. We need to love to the very end. Perhaps we can say it like this. We'll put this on, this, on the slide. The greatest thing you can do is serve like Jesus. That's greatness. That's what Jesus said greatness is. That's what he said mattered. So the next question to that is, so who, how, and where are you serving? Who, how, and where are you serving? This should be a huge consideration for us. Because I know that when I think about my life, I find myself caring about what's mine and myself way more than I do about others. And whenever I actually have to answer the question, if someone said, so who are you serving right now? <laughs> to be able to name them. That's where the challenge in life becomes real. That it's not just talk. It's not just, it's not just words, but there's real stories. We say it all the time around here, that we believe stories are the proof 
that we are actually the people of God and that we should have stories that back up what we say we believe. And if we say we believe in serving, well, then we should be able to say, here's a story of how I served. Are we going to go shout those from the mountaintops? Of course not, because we are humble people, right? But who are you serving? How are you serving? Where are you serving? And are you serving those places with the heart of God's love for them? You know, being a radical follower of Jesus, and some of you are like, I don't know if I want to be a radical follower of Jesus, but let's just say that you do. Being a radical follower of Jesus, sometimes it isn't all that radical. Sometimes it's not actually like, go quit your job and go sell the assets, burn the ships, you know, move to Africa. Maybe it's not as radical as that. Maybe it's actually just doing and being the things that God already said for us to do and be. Maybe if we actually did that, it would be pretty radical. Are you with me? Are you with me? Man, what if we just did and who and we were who we actually already have been told to be and we actually were already doing the things we've been told to do? I love this Mother Teresa quote. I want to show it to you. Mother Teresa, of course, her whole life was dedicated to serving the Lord and others and says this, don't look for great things, just do small things with great love. The smaller the thing, the greater must be our love. And when I, when I read that, I was thinking about how often we find our place in our minds and our eyes going to the big things. You know what I mean? We, we, we find satisfaction in getting a, a part of something that's big, great, grand. And in the small things, we, we look past. We look past all the small things we can do every day. So after after Jesus washed their feet. We'll go back to the scene in the upper room. Jesus returns to his seat after washing the disciples' feet. And uh, you can imagine the room has been silenced. There's like this sort of holy awe of what had just happened. That he had just washed their feet. and He was their teacher. They were his disciples. He was the one with all authority and power. And yet he died had done such a selfless act and they wouldn't really understand the selfless act until the next day would they fully grasp it all well like I said this scene is in the other gospels in Mark 14 something happens so he just washes their feet and they break into a meal we know the story verse 22 says this while they were eating Jesus took bread and when he had given thanks he broke it and gave it to the disciples saying take it this is my body then he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he said, he gave it to them and said, now drink, and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, he said to them. In the other scriptures, it says, and he says, do this again in remembrance of me. Continue to do this practice of what we know as communion or the Lord's Supper or whatever we want to call it. But when we come to the table and we take the bread and we take the cup, when I was thinking about today, here's what I knew. Talking, I've talked about serving many times in my life, and I've talked about humility many times in my life. And it's one of those things that none of us really know how to really take it into our heart and do something with it. It's not a go charge the hill. It's a go die on the hill. You know what I mean? We love the charge the hill, champion, you know, go conquer the world kind of moments. And that we need those moments. But the moments where it's just like, hey, do something that no one notices. 
serve behind the scenes, love them to the very end, do something that no one will talk about or celebrate or give you credit for. Hey, go and do the thing that no one else wants to do. Do the thing that could be disgusting, the thing that others would turn and walk away from. When I think about that message, like it's, it's one that I don't understand how it transformed the world because nobody wants to do it. But yet this is the message that Jesus did. This is the message that he gave us. This is the message that he lived all the way to the end. And then he said, hey, disciples, I need you to go do this. And they must've done it because it wouldn't have lasted if they didn't. If they would have been charged the hill, conquer the world, power and authority, right? If they would have been all about being in charge, this thing would have fell flat on its face Could have been because it would have been like every other movement the world has ever seen. So you wanna know how to lead the world. You wanna know how to change the world. You take the model of Jesus and you live it. You know these things. What does he say in verse 17? You know these things, now go and do them. Because the greatest among you will be like the youngest. The one who rules will be like the one who serves. See, the rulers in the, of, of this world, the ones that we, that we live under their authority in terms of government, they aren't really leading us into anything larger than the present, are they? What's leading us in the really grand scheme of everything? The one who gave it all, Jesus. Jesus is the one with all the power still to this day. He's the one with everything. And, and so whenever I say, how do you, what do you do with this? What do, what, what do we take from a message about servanthood and humility? Listen, this is what it means to carry the cross. This is what it means to say, you know what? I'm gonna make myself nothing. I'm gonna have the same mindset of Jesus, in which I'm not looking for credit. I'm not looking for greatness. I'm not looking for glory. I'm not looking for position. I'm not looking for all the things the world tells you you need to have to be anyone. Listen, we cannot continue to allow the world or man's opinion of us to define our greatness. We live under the authority and the love of God. And he's loved us to the very end. And all we have to do is submit to him and know that he's got a life waiting for us, right? A life that we can't imagine. And it starts with things like this in which he says, he says this, right? He says, I have set an example that you should do as I have done for you. I tell you the truth. No servant is greater than his master, nor a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. He's got a life of blessing for us. He's got a life of blessing for us. If we do what he says to do, that's what he says matters. So you want to go do things that matter in this world? You want to lead courageously? Here you go. Serve. Will you pray with me? With your heads bowed, I'm going to kind of open our hearts up to the table as we worship in just a moment. I want to invite us all to the table as a reminder. The table is for those who've confessed Jesus as Lord. If you've never given your life to Jesus, I want to invite you to consider him maybe for the first time. Maybe you need Jesus to come into your life. You need his salvation, his gift of love. Maybe you need to receive that today. And if you do, if right now you're saying, I need Jesus, today you can do that. In just a moment, I'll I'll lead you to where you can go talk to one of our prayer team members and just say, I need Jesus in my life. And they'd love to share with you how you can do that. For the rest of us, 
Maybe before we come to the table, we reflect on not only the way that Jesus served and loved us, but we reflect on even this question before us. How do we serve like Jesus? Who are we serving? How are we serving? Where are we serving? So we don't need to rush to the table today, but we can maybe pray that in this moment right now. I just want to give you just a moment just reflect on these things and maybe just say a prayer to get to the Lord. It says, God, before I come to the table, I want to, I want to say this. I want to cleanse my heart. And I, want to, I want to say these things of affection and worship to you. So if you just take a moment and do that, before you come to the table, prepare your heart right now. Father, we love you and we thank you. Thank you for how you have served us. Thank you for what we're about to take and to remember you by. The Lord, this, these broken pieces of bread represent your body that was broken for us. This cup, this juice represents the blood that was spilled for us and the grace that we've received through it. And Lord, we thank you for it. And we celebrate you today. Thank you for teaching us and how to live and, and the things that you modeled for us to become the people that you long for us to be. So Lord, we give you these next few moments. We worship you. Pray these things in your name. Amen. I'm going to invite you in just a moment to stand. And these tables are available on either side. There's one up in the balcony. Um, but these are open to you when you're ready to come. Would you stand with us?